0: Well, good morning, and welcome again to In-Town Presbyterian Church. My name is Steve. I'm glad that you're here with us. If this is your first time uh, visiting with us, please do note that uh, we don't normally meet here. This is our last week in this building. We're going to be back at the old church uh, on 10th and Clay next week. Um, But I'd love to meet you after the service if I haven't met you yet. Uh, We're um, continuing our series called The Songs of Hope this morning. We've been looking at uh, different psalms throughout the Advent season and and for just a few more weeks here. And this morning we're looking at a psalm that is, quite frankly, uh, a little difficult. Reading it silently to yourself, as I have done over and over this week, isn't very easy. And now I'm about to read it out loud, and that's going to be kind of awkward. And when we start to realize that this was actually a prayer that God's people would say in worship, and it it was ordered to actually be put to music and sung as a song... Well, that's just a little bit weird, and you'll find out what I mean in a moment, but this psalm is going to cause us to do some wrestling with our assumptions about who God is and how the mercy of Jesus changes things in our world. I'm going to read our passage and, and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is Psalm 109, and um, because of space constraints, we haven't been able to print the whole psalm here, so I encourage you to take a look at the whole thing uh, throughout this week, but um, yeah, just know that it's because of space, not because uh, we're embarrassed by weird things that this psalm has to say, which there are some pretty tough things. So let me just read this for us, and we'll get started. This is for the director of music, of David, a psalm. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. For people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues, with words of hatred. They surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand, for he has never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the broken-hearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I'm shaken off like a locust. Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to your unfailing love. Let them know that it is your hand that you, Lord, have done it. While they curse, may you bless. May those who attack me be put to shame, but may your servant rejoice. With my mouth, I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng of worshipers, I will praise him, for he stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we rely on you now most especially as we seek to understand you and your Word and the way that you have revealed yourself to us. As we seek to understand the results of evil and the moral fabric that you have placed in this universe, we need the enlightenment of the Spirit. We need to be led by Jesus himself into understanding the truth that you have taught to us. I ask this morning that you would be merciful to us. As we have already said, you do not treat us as our sins deserve. This morning, would we not fall over our strength in our own selves, but would we find ourselves being carried by you, living in this world as you have called us to live? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get too deep into this, uh, into what is called an imprecatory psalm, a psalm of cursing, there are a few things that I need you to just go with me on that I don't have time to unpack, because we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. But I would be happy to talk with you about these things a little bit more later on. Uh, But for now, just grant me a couple things here. The first is this. When it comes to God and religion, if someone tries to convince you of something that sounds wildly too complex, odds are it's probably wrong. At the same time, probably even more often, if someone tries to sell you an idea when it comes to God or religion that is just entirely too easy to swallow, if it's just really simple and it sits really well with you, every aspect of it, then odds are it's probably wrong. Which is sort of a jumping-off point for what we talked about last week, if you were with us, that if you can cut God down into digestible chunks, odds are you're God, not him. It takes a special kind of arrogance to assume that our perspectives, our attitudes, our feelings are normative and accurate, much less all-encompassing. God is in many ways like a good whiskey. It's a syrup, but it burns and it smokes and it takes time to acquire a taste for the depth and complexity. He's not always that easy to apprehend. The second thing is that as difficult as it may be at times to bring the whole of Christian Scripture to a point of convergence and impossible as it may be at times for us to understand what Scripture is telling us, how we're supposed to live our lives with it, we believe here that Jesus is that convergence. Jesus is the place where all of Scripture comes together and resides. He is the telos, the, the, the point of all of Scripture, where all of Scripture is headed. So when we get someplace like an imprecatory psalm that feels like we're getting a little bit lost, we just need to stick especially close to Jesus as we seek to understand. Okay? Number one, if God is, is not making you feel uncomfortable ever, you're probably in the wrong house. Number two, all of the Bible is fulfilled in Jesus. With that in mind, we're going to look at this psalm by looking at three things. The person of prayer, the power of prayer, and the mystery of mercy. The psalmist begins to describe his antagonists, these enemies of his, these people that have continued to repay his kindness with evil. He says rather simply about himself, but I am a man of prayer. And literally what the psalmist says is just, I, prayer. The the all-encompassing central feature of who this psalmist is is that he is a man of prayer. This is his entire identity. And when we understand this correctly, I think we'll begin to see that though the psalmist seems to be consumed with vengeance and violence, he is instead actually, in reality, pursuing patience and praise. He begins and ends this psalm with sort of bookends, this declaration that he is praising God. Now, we live in a strange culture, don't we? We live in a culture that on one hand seems to idolize revenge fantasies. There are any number of movies or comic books or even songs about this sort of thing. But at the same time, our culture, our culture tends to condemn this sort of vitriol from the religious as being fanatical and judgmental. And even those of us that, that maybe don't find ourselves on, on either of those poles, we, f- we find it difficult to read these imprecatory psalms, these psalms of cursing, especially when the psalmist starts to bring in evil people's children. It's really difficult to understand how this fits with the rest of Christian literature and Christian scripture especially. I think often we're blinded by the harsh language of these prayers and we're unable to see what is really happening at the core. Because at the core, rather than going around slandering his enemies, rather than spending time fantasizing about how he might cut down his enemies himself, rather than planning out revenge or actually acting out violently against his enemies, the psalmist instead comes to God in prayer. And does nothing but that. This psalm is attributed to David, and if this was written at the time that David was king, he could have reached out and killed his enemies with impunity. Even when, when David had not yet ascended to the throne, though it had been promised to him, and as his enemy Saul was just insanely after him all the time, there came a moment where David had an opportunity to kill his enemy, and all of his followers said, David, God himself has delivered your enemy into your hands, and yet David refused to take action. The psalmist is not a man of vengeance. He does not take revenge. He's a man of prayer. He opens himself up to anger, yes, but he allows himself to put aside violent recourse and wait patiently, even in the midst of his anger, and call out to God to fight for him. So that's the one person of prayer, but there's another person of this prayer. Who is the person that David is praying against? And while we don't have an actual historical idea of, of who that particular person is, I think that when we start to fill out the, the picture of the type of person that the psalmist is railing against, we'll begin to see how these sorts of angry prayers can be part of the Christian canon. Jeff Hall, who I promise you is no relation to me, um, was a rising leader in the National Socialist Movement, which is currently one of the largest white supremacist groups in the United States. Jeff was uh, angry and violent and incredibly racist. And like many white supremacists, Jeff was pretty obsessed with Nazi paraphernalia. But unlike many white supremacists, Jeff actually was not alienated from his family. He wasn't just a single you know, young white guy that, that didn't have this other realm. And he didn't keep his family separate from, from his racial bigotry. He had five young kids and he really indoctrinated all of them from a very young age with his racial bigotry. I mean, he even went so far as to to hang a swastika banner above his infant's bassinet. He steeped his children in hate-filled, vitriolic racism, especially his eldest son. He taught his son Joseph at a very young age how to shoot weapons. He gave him Nazi swastika emblazoned clothing and filled him With hate. Jeff's emotional and and mental abuse of filling his children with this sort of unbelievable hatred was accompanied by fits of rage and physical abuse toward his son. About a year and a half ago, when Joseph was 10 years old, so saturated with hate and violence, he got down his father's gun, loaded it, and went downstairs to where his father was sleeping and shot him point blank in the head killing him instantly joseph is now 12 years old and has just been found guilty of murder the court decided that he knew exactly what he was doing when he went and killed his father and so now they're trying to figure out how to sentence him odds are he's going to be in juvenile detention and prison for most of his life how the children are punished for the sins of the father This is so much more complex than just calling out judgment on one particular person. This has now passed and spanned generations. There is an evil in this world that is far worse than what most of us can possibly imagine. There are people being imprisoned right now for taking on baptism into the Christian church. There are pastors and congregants getting killed in attacks on their church buildings. There are girls who are not even teenaged yet that are being sold into sacrifices being abused for hours a day, every day of their life, by evil men. There are young boys being stolen from their homes and forced to murder their own friends to desensitize them to killing, so that they could take place in a war that they don't even understand. There are children being ripped apart by bullets in their own kindergarten classroom and sometimes Sometimes the only cry that can come out of your lips is, God, damn the evil in this world. The person being prayed against in this psalm hounds the poor and the needy to death. He calls down curses on all those around him so much so that it becomes like a coat. It's like his belt, his clothing. It seeps into his flesh and into his bones. This psalm isn't being prayed against an ornery person or a disagreeable person. I found out this week that that people have a bumper sticker that says, pray for the president, with this psalm as a reference. That is to utterly fail to understand the sort of evil that the psalmist is talking about. We are talking about a deep hatred and a systematic exploitation for people that are unable to defend themselves. Honestly, I think part of the reason that we're uncomfortable with psalms like this is because we're petty, and we project our pettiness onto God. It's as if God got cut off in cosmic traffic and races the guy down to shoot his tires out. And we fail to seriously consider the moral fabric of the universe. We fail to take seriously the horror that is part of daily life in many areas of our world. And as a result, we often fail to take seriously the power of prayer. If you've taken a college philosophy class, then you probably know what speech acts are, and you can throw around words like perlocution with your friends. And by the way, they think you're really cool when you say perlocution. If you've never heard of speech acts or perlocution, that's fine. You probably know the idea already, but here it is in a children's rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but that's actually nothing compared to words. Words can cause way more damage our words actually enact and change reality. Think about when a, when a nation declares war, or even more uh, obvious, when a minister declares at a wedding, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Words actually enact a change in the world. It changes the relationship between that man and that woman. When God's people come to him in prayer, things happen. That's not to say that God is beholden to us or is some sort of puppet that we just have to figure out the right string to pull. Prayer doesn't necessitate immediate apparent change, but words are not empty. And words spoken to God don't just evaporate into nothingness. So if, at times, the evil of the world overwhelms you, or if you have been the recipient of brutality and slander, as anger begins to rise within you, take on what the psalmist takes on and pray. Because prayer makes room for God to be God, for God to decide the outcome, for Him to pass judgment. And if you believe that prayer is powerful, even if answers aren't immediate, you will be able to relinquish your desires for vengeance in your cries to God. As I said in the beginning, the core identity of this psalmist is that rather than being a man of vengeance or retaliation, he is a man of prayer. The two are mutually exclusive. You can still be angry and pray, but you can't actually go out and enact vengeance when you're praying for God to do that very thing. And friends, if we truly believe that the Christian church is to care about issues of social justice, where we just walk out these doors and do the first thing that comes across our path, we're going to be overrun. We won't be able to figure out which way to turn as we try to figure out how to help. Social justice, yes, ends up in soup kitchens. Yes, it ends up in rough neighborhoods. It ends up costing us money and time and emotional energy, but it begins in our life of prayer. We are called to work out justice for the marginalized in this world, and we should never shirk that duty, but prayer is the only way to begin such a work. The more that you talk to God, the more you may become comfortable with angry prayers against injustice. The more you'll also realize that God is a God slow to anger, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, quick to forgive. And if He wasn't, we wouldn't even be able to stand before Him with our prayers in the first place. As I said before, um, I need you to just go with me on the idea that Jesus is the point of convergence for all of Scripture. And uh, there are New Testament passages that speak to that idea um, that we don't have time to get into. But for now, what I want us to see is that it's in Jesus that we can see imprecatory psalms, psalms of cursing, and yet the mystery of mercy colliding. Because apart from any personal misgivings we may have about a prayer like this, especially in our culture that, that seems to value tolerance above everything else, we still have to wrestle with the fact that a curse-filled prayer like this seems to cut directly against pretty much the entire direction of the New Testament. It seems to cut against the very words of Jesus. So the question is, should this psalm really be part of a prayer book for Christians? Or is it just a relic from a bygone era that no longer really has any bearing on our lives? Which is another way of asking, how are Christians supposed to act when horrible things happened to them. In late March of 2010, 19-year-old Connor McBride walked into the Tallahassee Police Department and told the officer on duty, you need to arrest me. I just shot my fiancé. Ann Grossmere, also 19, had been dating Connor for three years and they were excited to be getting married soon. And Within a few days of Connor turning himself in, she died, never having regained consciousness. The couple had been arguing about something for a few days, and for whatever reason, Connor shot her and killed her. Anne's parents, Kate and Andy, are devout Catholics, and they had always really liked Connor. They they were so looking forward to the day when their daughter would marry this young man. They looked forward to welcoming him into their family. They wanted him to be the father of their grandchildren. They got along really well with Connor's parents. But in a murderously stupid moment, their daughter was cut down in the prime of her life and she was just gone. They were never going to get her back. It was irreversible. As Anne's father was in the hospital room with her before they decided to take her off life support, praying for a miracle, waiting for, for any sign of life in his daughter he felt deep within his soul that his daughter was asking him to forgive Connor. And he said out loud, you're asking too much. Connor's parents actually came to the hospital. This is how close they were with Ann's family. And the two fathers hugged one another and Andy said, thank you for being here, but I might hate you by the end of the week. Eventually, Andy felt as if Jesus himself was asking him to forgive his daughter's murderer. And his wife, Kate, felt the same way. And she said, Before this happened, I loved Connor. I knew that if I defined him by that moment as a murderer, I was defining my daughter as a murder victim. And I could not allow that to happen. Connor owed us a debt he could never repay. And releasing him from that debt would release us from expecting that anything in this world could satisfy us. Anne's parents decided to forgive Connor, and and that was emotionally difficult enough. But they thought that they wouldn't really have much more to do with any of the process that was taking place around his conviction. But then they were informed about a restorative justice program that if they wanted to pursue, could actually cut Connor's sentence down Drastically from the, the minimums that the state of Florida imposes for a crime like this. And suddenly, they were in a position to feed their enemies, so to speak. I don't think there's a person in this room that would begrudge the Mare family praying an angry, imprecatory prayer like our text this morning against their daughter's murderer. And that very well could have been part of their private grief process toward God, I don't know, but their Christian commitment to forgiving their debtors cause them to actively work to get their daughter's murderer's prison sentence reduced. So what is the Christian thing to do? Is this a psalm that the church should just sweep under the carpet? Well, it's a little too late for that because this is actually one of the first psalms that the church quotes and meditates on. Before, before we even get out of the first chapter of Acts, Jesus has just ascended and the disciples have been meditating on this psalm and they quote from it. The New Testament is also replete with injunctions to treat your enemies with mercy, to let love cover a multitude of sins, and to forgive those who sin against you. We read many of those this morning. So how are we supposed to hold on to mercy while still crying out for judgment? What's the answer? Should Christians pray this prayer? Well, you might hate this as much as I do, but it's not really a clean-cut answer. In fact, it's kind of a schizophrenic answer. On the one hand, many of us good Presbyterians that we are have this really unhealthy Anglo-Saxon thing going, this tendency to keep a stiff upper lip. Somewhere back in our cultural lineage, it became assumed that being emotional is a sign of weakness or instability, but letting it roll off your back and not getting your feathers ruffled became the virtues of maturity. And yeah, as far as it goes, keeping even-keeled is a good thing to practice. Getting all blown up over petty things is not the greatest way to live. But though a lot of us need to stop being petty, most of us need to stop stuffing down our emotions into some passive-aggressive sludge. We need to learn how to mourn and wail. We need to learn how to laugh till our faces hurt. And we need to learn how to be really good and angry. Being unperturbed by the suffering endured by the marginalized and impoverished at the hands of evil is not a sign strength of character. It's a sign that you're dead inside. Not only do we need to learn how to be angry well, we also need to learn how to be angry and talk to God about it, rather than take out vengeance on our own. But the other side of this is that our prayers are modeled on the prayers of Jesus. And it's in the prayers of Jesus that the mystery of mercy is revealed because rather than take on vengeance against his enemies, God entered into the world with vulnerability. And now all of our prayers get subsumed under the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the prayer that we pray every single week. God, would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? The prayer that Jesus himself prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane with death whispering at his door, not my will Thine be done. Jesus allows his will to be shaped by whatever it is that his Father is wanting to accomplish in the world, even if that means going to death. As if that prayer wouldn't be hard enough for us to practice. As Jesus is dying, he calls on his Father to forgive his murderers. And as much room as we'd like to put between ourselves and And the people that killed God or the people that have harassed his church ever since or the people that do heinous, horrible things to children, the fact is the distance between us and our enemies is a millimeter compared to the distance between us and Jesus before he took on our death and slammed into us with life. Friends, we have been seeing for the last several months in our study of the Gospel of Luke that Christianity turns enemies into our neighbor's. And what we find as we look at this psalm is that we can still be angry with injustice, but that anger will find expression as we pray for God to reconcile all to himself in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you not allow us to go out from this place and try to shield ourselves from the evil that is taking place in this world. There are people that are connected to us in ways that we don't even understand by virtue of being our brothers and sisters in the church that are undergoing persecution. There are defenseless, weak children being exploited for the selfish purposes of other people, and yet we so often just try to ignore it. I ask that this morning we would not ignore the cries of, of innocent, weak, helpless people, but that we would enjoin in, in with them, that we would be angry well at the evil in this world, but that we would also be people of peace, knowing that Jesus has taken on the wrath and all of the sin. that 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 wrath is there for, for our sake, that we could go out from this place not seeking revenge on those who perpetrate evil, but seeking to bring them into reconciliation with you. We ask this in Jesus' name.